Live from the 15 Freeway North, going towards Omaha, Nebraska, this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 226, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. So, wait a minute. The I-15 doesn't go to Omaha, though. It, like, goes to Idaho Falls. Don't look at the engineer. Look at the producer. You go up the 15 freeway until you hit Virgin River Gorge. Then you go through Virgin River Gorge. And then you hit the 76 and then the 70. Why wouldn't you just get on the 80 and go over? Because well, yes, I realize you cut off a lot. longer, yeah. I, I realize that. But the 80 is what goes through Omaha. Yes. Not the 15 North. No, but we're on the 15 North because we're starting our trip. We just uh, left. Going toward Omaha. Yeah. Or we could say we're in Heading Omaha to on Omaha, the 80. Maybe. Everybody well, pull out your Google Maps and uh, see, where, see where Las Vegas we is. We have way too many backseat drivers in this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. We'll never get lost. Well, needless to say, from the banter that is the terrible lostness of us and Cash's cell phone ringing. <laughs> okay, Angry Birds, really? No, I, I cannot turn it off because I want to do shout outs to people. So, sorry. <laughs> you can, you can turn silent. the ring. You could turn the ringer off. Uh, good point. <laughs> Cash, the life-challenged <laughs> member Why of our team. Why problem make when you no problem have, you don't want to make? Okay, all my sounds are gone. <laughs> Suppressed. Well, this week we are all heading to the APS show in Omaha, Nebraska, but as a treat, Cash has very graciously allowed us to partake and listen to his genuinely fantastic new episode of his Relics of History podcast. Oh, yay. Yeah, this is uh, on the election of 1856. There is a huge amount of postal history to it. And as a matter of fact, Harmer Shaw at the APS show is going to be auctioning off a Millard Fillmore uh, campaign cover, which is the only one I have ever seen. And I'm going to be actively bidding on it. And if you uh, listen to this, you may see why. Enjoy. You know, the uh, turnout for those elections was really high. I think uh, like 78%. Yes, yes. And it was very interesting because uh, the Republican wasn't in 12 of the states. He wasn't even on the, on the ballot. Well, that may happen with Trump. Yeah, it could. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we should definitely do that. Well, you know, you brought up the Trump thing. For people who are into history, it is absolutely, positively, genuinely okay for California to say, if you don't show us your tax returns, we're not putting you on the ballot. It is 100% approved. The states determine who goes on each ballot. Now, you have to be fair, but, you know, 
you've listened to the podcast 1856 election and it may give you some insight as to what's going on now as a matter of fact there's a lot in this 1856 that is still going on today Music for this episode is The Last Hope from Louis Moreau Gottschuk. Louis Gottschuk is widely acknowledged as America's greatest concert pianist of the 19th century. He was born in New Orleans and most famous for his three piano solos called the Louisiana Trilogy. They are based on Creole tunes. All were composed when Gottschalk was still a teenager. The United States' presidential election of 1856 was a heated contest between the Democrat, James Buchanan, who was the ambassador to the United Kingdom at the time, and who has appeared on many U.S. postage stamps. The American Party candidate was Millard Fillmore, who was president four years earlier, and as such, is also seen on many U.S. postage stamps. And for the brand new Republican Party, John C. Fremont, with a squiggle over the E, who crusaded against the expansion of slavery and appears on the Legends of the West postage stamp from 1994 in his military uniform. He also appears on top of the mountain on the 1898 Five Cent Trans-Mississippi postage stamp. James Buchanan ran on a platform that warned that the Republicans were extremists whose victory would lead to a civil war. The Democrats overall endorsed the compromise of 1850's popular sovereignty approach, as was discussed on the prior Relics of History podcast, episode number 7. The Republican Party did indeed run firmly on ending slavery and also, as a sort of a side note, uh, no polygamy in Utah either. Former President Millard Fillmore represented a third party, the American Party, who are more commonly known as the Know-Nothings. The Know-Nothings almost totally ignored the slavery issue in favor of an anti-immigration and anti-Catholic agenda. The presidential election of 1856 took place during a mini-civil war in Kansas, brought about by the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The Kansas-Nebraska Act created those two states and then allowed them to vote on whether they were to be slave states or free states. Rabble-rousers 
political extremists and ne'er-do-wells of every type moved in to vote for or against slavery. And their campaigning generally involved a lot of guns, a lot of torches, and a lot of pitchforks. The current president, President Franklin Pierce, during this election hoped for a renomination of the Democrats so he could get a second term in office. But the Democrats wanted none of that and selected the less controversial candidate, James Buchanan, who wasn't even in the country at the time. As I said earlier, he was serving as the ambassador to Britain, and therefore he totally lacked all the baggage that came with American politics. The brand new Republican Party held its first national convention in Philadelphia after the breakup of the Whig Party due to slavery, and also joined together with the Free Soil Party, which was squarely an anti-slavery party. The convention nominated the dashing young explorer and soldier John C. Fremont. Now as dashing goes, Fremont was it. Romantic, daring, war hero, adventurer. He was everything you could want in a Hollywood hero. In fact, it is surprising that a movie, or actually ten movies, haven't been made about this fellow. John C. Fremont met his wife, Jessie Benton, daughter of a U.S. senator, and a romance blossomed between the two of them. Jesse's father was against it because Fremont was not considered upper society. Fremont and Jesse eloped and were married. Jesse's father was furious, but in time, he loved his daughter and so he accepted their marriage. A true love story and no movie. And by the way, no, the 1986 miniseries with Richard Chamberlain does not count. There have been no John C. Fremont movies, and it is surprising. Fremont was known as the Pathfinder. He was a crack shot with a sextant and a compass, and he led a dozen major mapping expeditions into the interior of America. Think Brad Pitt mixed with Lewis and Clark. These included expeditions with the famous frontierman and fur trapper Kit Carson. Fremont's explorations were widely publicized by his wife, who was his co-author, and their romantic vacation guidebook styles of writing was, to say the least, very popular at the time. Indians attacked one of his expedition parties, and Fremont retaliated, so you can add Indian fighter to his resume. At that fight, Kit Carson was nearly killed by an Indian warrior because Carson's gun misfired. The warrior then went in for the kill when Fremont, seeing that Carson was in danger, he trampled the Indian warrior with his horse. And... No movie. 
Unfortunately, in 1845, Fremont's explorations were interrupted because he had to become a war hero in the Mexican-American War. In 1845, Fremont was secretly told that if war started with Mexico, he was to turn his scientific map-making expedition into a military one. Fremont left St. Louis with the largest and most heavily armed map-making team ever assembled and set out for Monterey in Alta, California. When he arrived, the Spanish were rightfully suspicious and they ordered Fremont to take his men and leave California. Instead, Fremont and his men built a fort on top of a hill raised an American flag, and dared the Spanish authorities to do something. And with that, he basically conquered Northern California. Fremont then ordered a group of armed rebels to occupy Sonoma, California, which was the largest settlement in Northern California at the time. The rebels formed the Bear Flag Republic, and Fremont took the title Military Commander of U.S. Forces in California. And no movie. News finally came that while all this was going on, the United States was actually at war with Mexico. You have to remember that mail was very slow back then. Fremont was appointed a major in command of the California Battalion and appointed the military governor of California. Well, General Winfield Scott, who I discussed in the last episode because he ran for president in 1852, made Brigadier General Kearney the military governor of California. But no one told Fremont of his replacement. Kearney, who is on Scott's number 944, the three-cent stamp of 1946, then ordered Fremont's California Battalion to be enlisted in the normal U.S. Army. And Fremont needed to bring all his paperwork to Kearney's office, basically ending Fremont's military career. Fremont delayed obeying these orders, hoping someone would confirm that he was still the military governor of California. Fremont gave orders to his California battalion not to surrender their arms yet. Well, General Kearney then appointed Colonel Richard Mason as military governor of California. Fremont and Mason obviously were at odds with each other as to who was in charge. Fremont actually challenged Mason to a duel, but it was agreed that the duel would be postponed and Fremont marched back to Leavenworth, Kansas, where Brigadier General Kearney had him arrested and court-martialed. He was charged with mutiny, disobedience of orders, assumption of power, and several other military offenses. Fremont was found innocent of mutiny, but he was convicted of some small little things like disobedience toward a superior officer, as well as some other trivial military misconduct items. While approving the court-martial's decision, President Polk 
immediately commuted the sentence of dishonorable discharge, and then reinstated Fremont into the army. Fremont was understandably pissed off, and he resigned his commission in protest. Despite the court-martial, or probably because of it, Fremont became even more popular than ever. And still there's no movie. So what did Fremont do next? He went exploring again. He got support from the U.S. Senate and some private funding to map a path for the Transcontinental Railroad. While he was doing this, when he was in California on the expedition, now that the war was over, Fremont purchased some land in the Sierra foothills of California because why wouldn't he? Well, Fremont later was informed that a five-mile-long gold vein had been discovered on his property, and Fremont became instantly very wealthy. Ta-da! In 1849, an election to ratify the new California Constitution to make California a state was held. Who do you think became a senator? Fremont, known for being a Western hero and regarded by most as totally an innocent victim of an unjust court-martial system, was easily elected as the Democrat senator from California. An interesting note is that since both California senators were elected at the same time, their terms needed to be staggered. So in a very rare loss, Fremont pulled the shorter straw. Yes, they drew lots. And Fremont received the shorter Senate term. Later, just because he was John C. Fremont, in the fall of 1853, when his term expired, Fremont embarked on another expedition to map the Transcontinental Railroad route. So that was John C. Fremont, and no movie. So who was he up against? The Democrat running for president was James Buchanan. He was a prominent lawyer in Pennsylvania who won election to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives as a Federalist. Later, he won election to the United States House of Representatives. He served as Andrew Jackson's minister to Russia and later was elected as a senator. He became the Secretary of State under President Polk. As stated in the prior episode, Buchanan quietly campaigned for the 1852 nomination, but failed due to his sympathies toward the South and the nomination went to Franklin Pierce, who won. After Pierce was elected, Buchanan was appointed to his position as the United States Ambassador to the United Kingdom, and off he went to England. So some of the highlights of Buchanan were that he negotiated the Clayton-Bullard Treaty, which committed the United States and Britain to joint control over any future canal they connected the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Buchanan also met with the British foreign minister to pressure Britain to withdraw from Central America. 
With the Spanish and French ambassadors, he met in Belgium and drafted the memorandum that became known as the Osted Manifesto. Which supported taking Cuba from Spain if Spain refused to sell it. That manifesto went over like a tornado in a trailer park. So let's just call him a politician. His nickname was Old Public Functionary. Before that, Franklin Pierce, his nickname was Handsome Frank. Zachary Taylor was Old Rough and Ready. James K. Polk was the Napoleon of the Stump. Buchanan was Old Public Functionary. Brad Pitt, he was not. Wilford Brimley, maybe. The third person running for president in 1856 was Millard Fillmore, who became the 13th president of the United States after the death of Zachary Taylor. He was a Whig party member, but after the collapse of the Whig party in 1852, due to the divided opinions about slavery, he was partyless, and so became the nominee of the American Party, better known as the Know Nothings. Fillmore was born into poverty in New York State. His parents were tenant farmers. He had little formal education, but he rose from poverty to become an attorney and was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Initially, he belonged to the Anti-Masonic Party. Yes, that was a thing. He became a Whig and a powerful Ways and Means Committee Chairman in the U.S. House of Representatives. Later, he became the Vice President under Zachary Taylor and then the President upon his death. Through his career, Fillmore declared slavery an evil but one beyond the powers of the federal government to control. Fillmore supported the Compromise of 1850, though his boss, President Taylor, did not. Upon becoming president in 1850, Fillmore fired Taylor's cabinet and carried out his own policies. He pushed Congress to pass the Compromise of 1850 bills. Phil Morris felt himself duty-bound to enforce it, though it destroyed his popularity and served ultimately to destroy the entire Whig party. He sought re-election in 1852, but the Whigs had had enough, and he was passed over by the Whigs in favor of Winfield Scott, as we discussed in the last podcast. As the Whig party broke up, many of the Whig conservatives joined the Know-Nothings, forming the American party. So what is a Know-Nothing, you might ask? Well, the party is actually the Native American party, but it dropped the Native part of its name in 1855. It was an anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, secret society the group only emerged as a political party in this election. The first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. Well, the Know Nothings got their name because 
They were told, whenever asked, I know nothing. If you ask them about policies or stance on the issues, they were told to answer, I know nothing. The Know Nothings believed a Catholic conspiracy run by Rome was attempting to subvert civil and religious freedoms in the United States. They saw the huge number of immigrants coming into the United States as a hugely destabilizing factor. And they were not too keen on the number of blacks coming in either. They saw themselves as true Americans. The collapse of the Whig Party left an opening for such a party. The American Party served as an alternative for people opposed to the Democrat Party, but who are not too hot for the Republican Party. Many members hoped that it would seek a middle ground, and it kind of just rambled about in a very nationalistic, anti-immigrant way. In the election, voting was divided along very clear lines. The Democratic strategy was to picture the Republicans as a hotbed of radicalism and ignored the know-nothings. The Democrats called the Republicans the party of disunion and described Fremont as a Catholic, a drunkard, a bastard, and a black abolitionist who would destroy the Union. The Catholic part was to address the Know Nothing Party. The Republicans ran on a party of free speech, free press, free soil, free men, Fremont, and victory. And also that no polygamy thing in Utah. The know-nothings, they just sat back and let their numbers grow. It grew in the working classes and the disenfranchised masses. But slavery turned out to be more of a concern than immigration, so, yeah. During this election, all the candidates produced campaign envelopes for mailing. There are American Party envelopes and covers, but none that actually show Fillmore as the candidate, while the Republican and Democrat envelopes clearly show the candidates. There are some interesting Fremont campaign covers showing our Jesse, who is Fremont's wife. Buchanan was a bachelor and most likely gay. To capitalize on this, the Republican, Fremont, produced several campaign covers as well as other material showing his beautiful wife, Jessie, as a way of saying, with Fremont, you get a first lady. An interesting note is that few voters in the 1850s cared if a person was gay. Well, the Democrat, James Buchanan, one with 154 electoral college votes and 45% of the popular vote. John C. Fremont won 114 electoral college votes and 33% of the popular vote. Just a note, Fremont did not receive a single vote 
south of the Mason-Dixon line. Zero. He wasn't placed on the ballot. The parties produced the ballots and the parties needed a state party organization to get on the ballot in each state. The Republicans, for various reasons, had no state party organization in the South. Lincoln would also not be on the ballots in the South when his election was held four years later. So in the South, it was all Buchanan versus Fillmore. Fremont did carry 11 northern states, but surprisingly, in California, a state you would expect him to do great in, he came in third with only 19% of the vote behind Buchanan and Fillmore. The American Party candidate, the know-nothing Millard Fillmore, received eight Electoral College votes from the border state of Maryland and he got 21% of the popular vote. That is the second highest percentage of any third party candidate in history behind Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose Party in 1912. And so James Buchanan became the 15th president of the United States and fulfilled the legacy as being ranked the worst president ever by most historians. listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.